I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. But I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if, he re- if you received a different spirit from the one that you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. O Holy Spirit, we come to this text. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds as we seek to see what it is that you would say to us in this text concerning your Son, concerning your gospel, concerning your church. It's in Christ that we pray these things. Amen. In our text this morning, we get to probably one of the harder texts in many ways in the way that Paul is forced to come out against the super apostles. He names them here. He's actually got a name for them as he talks about those that he has in mind that are taking the people of God in the church at Corinth away from the gospel. There are many speculations as to who these super apostles are. But whoever they are, and we'll get into that as we dive into our text this morning, it is very, very clear they have taken the hearts of the people of Corinth away from the gospel. Yes, even away from love for their most beloved apostle Paul, who had founded the church, who had loved them very dearly, loved them so much that he was willing to work for free. Reading in Acts, we know that he was a tent maker in Corinth, that he actually funded his own mission so that he didn't have to burden anyone in Corinth. And now, their love, their affections, as it were, were going after someone else, something else, another message. And so Paul, in our text this morning, 
is forced to have to prove himself as a good apostle, as he has been doing, but now as he has been on the defense for so long in our sermons past, as we've gone through the first part of this book, he is now going to go on to the attack. He's going to have to show not only that he loves Corinth very dearly and that they ought to listen to him, and not only is his gospel true that he preaches, for indeed it is, it is founded on Christ, but that what the false teachers, what these super apostles are bringing, it is not good. It does not come from God. Indeed, it is false. And so in our text this morning, we will dive into how Paul goes about doing this as he has to fight against those false teachers in the pale. And in so doing, we will see that there are three points that he has for us this morning. And the first, we will see that he first proves his love again by now using an analogy. And this will be a framing story for the rest of the passage. That is relating the church in Corinth to a bride being presented to her husband. And Paul wishes that she would be pure and undefiled as he presents her to the Lord Jesus Christ, her husband. Then we will see Paul's fatherly love for the people here, which goes along in this analogy, for he feels like a father to them. He has been talking as a father throughout this letter, and now he shows his great fatherly love for them. But then lastly, in the climax of this passage, he will zero in on the false apostles. And he will show them for what they truly are, show that they are in disguise, as it were, and that they would have them be defiled and not go to Christ, whom, the, how, whom Apostle Paul has been working to present them to for so long. So let us dive into our text this morning as we see what it is the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, starting in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In the starting out, Paul gives us almost a sarcastic tone. He says, bear with me. Bear with me in a little foolishness. What is this foolishness that he is speaking to? Well, there are two things that could be in mind here. One, we do know That the gospel of Jesus Christ going to those who have hard hearts, going to those who are not those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit but are dead in their sins, that the gospel sounds like foolishness. But we also know that Paul is going to have to hear also, have to commend himself to the Corinthians again. He's going to have to do what seems like boasting. And we know, even in the Old Testament, that this is not something that, boasting is not something the Christian should be marked for. We are to be a humble people. Proverbs 27.1 says, let your lips not praise yourself. And so to any Jew who knew their Old Testament well and knew the Proverbs well, it would seem as foolishness what Paul is about to have to do. Either way, he is speaking somewhat hyperbolically, is he not? Put up with my foolishness, he says. Bear with me as I continue. And why should they bear with him? Because he feels a divine jealousy. A divine jealousy for them. And here he enters into one of his 
one of the analogies that he's most fond of using, which is that of the church being as a bride and Christ being the bridegroom. He says, I betrothed you to one husband. To one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not language that is unique to the New Testament. So often I think we need to be reminded of just how unified the Old and New Testaments are. That the church is the bride of Christ is not something that merely the New Testament speaks of, but Hosea 2.19, when it's speaking to the church under age, that is Israel. We read, even in our passage this morning in Hosea, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. That is God speaking to Israel. This is always how the Bible has seen the church. Paul would say in Ephesians, he would go even further, he would say that the very institution of marriage, as it was set up in the very opening chapters of Genesis, he would say, I tell you what we're reading is a mystery. And it is describing the love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his church. God puts marriage into the very fabric of reality that we might see, we might have a picture of the love that he has for his people. And so Paul jumps into this analogy. But if this is the analogy he's going to use, he feels then a divine kind of jealousy, he says. This is not a jealousy of ill content. This is not a bad jealousy, one that is sinful, for indeed so often jealousy can be sinful. But this is not what Paul is talking about. He is jealous for Corinth because he feels a fatherly love toward them. If he is going to hand off, as it were, or present, as it were, Corinth as this bride-to-be, then he is jealous for her that she is not taken away from going down that aisle, that she is not taken away from going toward her betrothed, her beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he feels this jealousy and then continues. He says, I would, have, I would present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Ambrosiaster, one of the early century commentators, said this of the passage. He said, as Paul now is speaking here as a father to the church in Corinth, and as the Super apostles are continuing to try to undermine Paul and his message and who he is. He said, to speak ill of a father harms the son, and the praise of sons is a father's glory. Why does this pain Paul so much? To hear of what's going on because he as a spiritual father to the church in Corinth sees what's going on and would have them go down the path of light, not that of darkness. He takes the analogy a step further in the next verse when he relates it back to the garden. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In speaking here of this analogy in which Corinth is the wife that is being presented to the husband, he goes back to the first of wives, that is Eve, who is presented to Adam to be his bride, to be his helpmeet, for it was not good the man should be alone. 
She was in that way a perfect companion for him, complimenting him, created by God to do so, in a wonderful and perfect design. And yet, we know that Eve's story and Adam's story does not end there. Adam, being the one who heard the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, failed in his duty to protect his wife from the intruder in the garden. The serpent came to Eve and deceived her. And even as he deceived her, he deceived Adam. For we know that not long after, even in the verse directly after, he also took of the fruit and ate. Instead of protecting his wife, instead of protecting the garden that had been entrusted to him and slaying the intruder, that is, the dragon or the serpent, he instead succumbed and gave into the temptation and allowed his wife to be deceived. So now, too, Paul looks at Corinth, and he is seeing something similar going on with her. A similar kind of deception is at work. If the framing story is that they are the bride, if they are Eve, then now we have another analogy being made. If the church in Corinth is Eve, then who is the serpent? We will see that as we go throughout our text. But they are indeed being deceived. But also we should think about if we know they are Eve and we are thinking about who is the serpent, we should also think who is Adam in this analogy. For indeed the frame will continue throughout And so he is jealous for them, and he is worried for this cunning, this similar cunning that comes from those that would take them away from their betrothed, from their beloved, from the Lord Jesus Christ. And why are these more scary? I mean, I do see here, and I think we can see this all throughout the way that Paul speaks to the churches and speaks of false teachers, that so often they are actually more dangerous than those who are in the pagan world outside the church. Those outside the church will act as we expect them to do. They will preach false gospels, false messages all of the time. But those in the church are the ones that we do not expect. Those that come in, they proclaim that they are Christian. They proclaim that they are preaching a true gospel, and yet they are preaching something different. Perhaps the congregation grows weary of hearing me mention this story, and yet I would that you would bear with me a little foolishness here. But as I was in school at a college that ostensibly called itself a Christian college, this is where I met, unfortunately, some of the most egregious attacks to my faith. Those who I thought were Christian, those who I thought shared the same worldview that I did, those who I thought stood on the scriptures as truth, as the inerrant word of God, would ascend a lectern and would begin to teach. And would begin to teach things that would cause me as an 18, 19, 20-year-old young man to question things that I had been taught all throughout my youth. It was quite a scary time for me. The Lord, in his providence and in his comfort and by his Holy Spirit, brought me through and brings many children through. And yet what is the danger here? 
my sister having a similar circumstance in another school that did not call itself Christian, did not have the same kind of situation because she knew that her professors were going to preach something contrary to the gospel. She went in expecting that. But it was for me and my other sister as we thought we were getting into something Christian, as we thought we were going to hear from a Christian teacher, that we were sidelined, that we were blindsided. And I say this, that we might be warned, beloved, that we might be on guard, for these are the attacks that hit the hardest. These are the attacks we do not expect. These were the attacks coming into the Corinthian church that they did not expect. And that Paul, now writing from afar, perhaps even feeling quite helpless as he is from afar, hearing this bad news, says, no, don't you know who I was presenting you to? Don't you know what I was preaching to you? Therefore, it is so important, as Paul says elsewhere, that we must hold every thought captive unto Christ. Every thought captive. Paul goes on in verse 4, and here he begins to really expound upon his fatherly love that he has for the people that he is writing to. He says in verse 4, For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. If you hear this passage you, and you've read many of Paul's works, there's one passage that this jumps right back to because there's only one other, one other time when Paul uses the word another gospel. And that is in the first chapter of Galatians when he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. After saying, it seems you Galatians have gone after another gospel. Is there really another gospel? No, of course not. There is no other good news whereby man can be saved. He's speaking hyperbolically again. But he's saying, but if someone came to you, Corinthians, and preached another gospel, you put up with it. You are allowing them to continue to preach contrary to Christ, to preach contrary to what I preached when I was there. Even if you don't believe it yourself, you're allowing that to continue to be preached in and amongst you. How dangerous is this for your souls, for the souls of your children? And he brings it back here as he ties together with how he opened up. He said, would you put up with my foolishness? He says, if they preach the way they preach, you put up with it there. Would you not put up with my foolishness? for a moment. And so he condemns these false preachers, but warns those who would tolerate them and allow them into the church. How on guard must we be? False teachers do not proclaim themselves. I remember being with my brother-in-law, Will, one time when we had young men who were Mormons knock on his door, who came in proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, or so they said. 
They wanted to sit down with us and to tell us about this Lord Jesus Christ they were speaking to. Me and my brother said, well, of course. And we sat down and offered them coffee before realizing they don't drink coffee. (laughs) And then began to speak with them. And as we continue to unpack what it is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, we realized they were not proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we knew that going in, but I think they started to dawn on them that what we meant by Jesus was not what they meant by Jesus. It's confused them. They were trying to find unity. They were trying to say, well, we're Christian just like you because we proclaim Jesus and you proclaim Jesus. And Will saw a bust that he had in his room of some old, it was an old uh, Greek bust of probably Julius Caesar or someone like that. And he pointed at that and he said, what if I called that statue Jesus? Is he Jesus? And the two young boys started laughing. They're like, no, of course not. And he said, exactly. Just because you say you proclaim Jesus doesn't mean you're actually proclaiming him. If you divert from what the scriptures say of who he is, if you begin to describe him in ways that he has not been laid down for us in the word of God, if you begin to say things like he had a beginning, that he was created, then you're not talking about Jesus anymore. You're talking about something else. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Christ created all things. And the Mormon boys could not say that. Some may say this is a hard saying, shouldn't we try to put up with those who have disagreements with us? Shouldn't we have toleration for them? Is toleration not a chief virtue in our age? And yet the most loving thing we could do in that situation for those boys who had unfortunately throughout their whole lives been raised in something and they knew nothing else was to tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ of the real Son of God, the real Logos who was there in the beginning and created all things, and who came down from heaven, dwelt amongst us, who suffered and died on our behalf, and yet was raised. This is who they needed to know. The most loving thing for us to do was not to tolerate their misconception of who Jesus was. That would not be loving for those they come into contact with. That would not be loving for them. The most loving thing we could do was in kindness to not tolerate it and to speak of the true Lord Jesus. And so too with Paul as he's speaking to the Corinthians. The virtue here is not to tolerate this false gospel being preached in their midst is not to put up with it, as he says, but is to root it out, that the pure gospel is preached amongst the saints of Christ. Paul goes on as he has to show his fatherly love and a bit of his credentials. As he says, indeed, I consider it that I am not in the the least inferior to those super apostles. 
Here he names them, these super apostles or hyper apostles. Some traditions or some sources of tradition claim that these super apostles claimed that they were taught by the apostle John. Whether that's true or not, if they were trained, they obviously quickly departed from what John preaches, for John indeed preaches the same gospel that Paul does. But there's also a very good chance that they were not at all. They were using John as a name in order to gain credibility amongst the Corinthians. And so, John, or so Paul has to come along and say, I do not consider myself inferior to these. In one sense, he might be saying, if they're claiming John as their teacher, he's saying what he has had to say elsewhere. Even though I was untimely called, even though I was not one of those 12 who went around with the Lord for three years in his earthly ministry, that I was still called by the Lord Jesus Christ as he came to me on the road to Emmaus and said, Paul, why do you persecute me? I shall make you suffer that the gospel might go forth to the nations. Or he may even just be saying, to these that would call themselves apostles, these who would call themselves super apostles even, I consider myself not inferior to them. Why? Why must he boast in such a way? Because he was sent by Christ. He does have right authority to say this, but because, more importantly, that what they are claiming proves that they are no apostle at all. And their message is false. Paul goes on, he says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. This probably reminds many of us of a very famous verse from 1 Corinthians, the first letter he wrote to them when he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Does this mean that Paul was a terrible public speaker? No. Actually, looking back at those who looked at the text like Augustine and Chris Austin from the early days of the church, only a few hundred years after this was being written, men who were trained by some of the best rhetoricians in the Roman Empire, in Greek and in Latin, look back at Paul and find some of the best rhetorical skill in the way that he writes his letters. Paul is very well educated and very capable of speaking in this way. So why does Paul then act as though he's unskilled in speaking? Because he would not have the focus of the people be drawn away from what's important. He would rather them not see the fluff, as it were, the pretty sounds, as it were. But he would rather them see the power of the gospel of Christ. R.L. Dabney, when speaking on the importance of this aspect in preaching, said that at times it is proper to use emotion and emotional technique in rhetoric in the way that we preach the gospel. Sometimes that is proper. Of course it is. But we should beware in how we do that so often, lest we begin to take the hearts of the people listening and have them enamored 
with the way that the words sound and the emotions that they stir up within us takes the focus away from what's important. Preaching is not important. Preaching is not central because it sounds nice, because it is tickling to the ear. Our worship services are not good because they stir up emotions, because they cause us to feel a certain way, know the content of what is being preached and who is being preached is what is most important. So often, does God allow for us to be weak in certain areas? Why? So that he can show the strength, the power, and the beauty of himself. Lest the cross be emptied of his power, Paul says, right? He would rather them see the cross of Christ than his eloquence of speech. No doubt the super apostles had eloquence down. No doubt they were great speakers. This seems to be the thing they were attacking Paul on. Oh, his letters sound nice, but he gets here and he's not very tall of stature. He's not, doesn't have much presence. Actually, he's willing to speak much more harshly in his letters and seems very weak here. Paul is reminding them that he didn't come in eloquence, but he had a knowledge that was very important, that is, the knowledge of the gospel of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 7 as he is proving his fatherly love to his people and says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. What's he referring to? His humbling would be seen by the Greeks as quite a humbling in that he engaged in manual labor while he was there in Corinth in order to support himself. Greeks, especially those who were teachers and were well-skilled at gaining followers, would not do such things. That was beneath them especially those who had a more Gnostic tendency, which was quite popular amongst many Neoplatonic thinkers, who said that manual labor was actually a lesser thing. It was actually an evil in and of itself. That the spiritual was far more important, and so we should not worry about the physical world. We should actually try to flee it. It's like a cage, prisoning our souls. Paul did not take such a view. He comes into Corinth and he takes up work. Why? so that he might exalt, he says, the church in Corinth. He would rather them hear the gospel free of charge. And so he is willing to go to work. That's more important to him. He even says it's so important to him that he, in verse 8, robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Now, again, he speaks hyperbolically as he has been throughout this passage. Of course, he didn't go into Macedonia, sneak into the church, and steal the tithe money. But they gave, as he has said before, far beyond their means because of their great love for him. Actually, for their great love for Corinth. That the gospel might be preached there. And Paul says he would go on doing this. Why? To undermine the super apostles. 
He would rather them continue to seek to be paid and continue to seek to have followers and him to not be paid, even though he has the right to be paid. He has every right to be paid. But so that they would see that those who preach the true gospel of Christ have a love for the people that they are preaching to. They are not merely after lucre. They are not merely after followers. They are after the hearts of those that they preach to so that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ as their blessedness and reward. And so he was willing to do so. And he says in verse 10, the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. He must boast. He's using this word again, but now in a different way. The super apostles boast, don't they? They do boast of themselves, of their ability, of their talents, of their ability to proclaim a message. Paul boasts in something quite differently. And he can't help but boast in that thing. He would boast in the Lord Jesus Christ in his message. He would have that be proclaimed all throughout Achaia, that is, all throughout Greece. And he would boast in that all the day long. Brothers and sisters, we are required not to boast in ourselves, but we are actually required to boast. We must boast in Christ and what he has done, in the works that he did in his ministry on the cross and in his resurrection. Now we come to the climax of our passage as Paul, now having continued to try to undermine these false apostles, is going to pull no punches now as he labels them for what they really are. He says in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In this climax, do we not see the framing story coming back? That if Eve is Corinth in the story, then these men are the serpent. Indeed, he says as much. They are like their father. For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan, that is Lucifer, that is one who we know to have been an angel. But emphasis on the have been. He fell. And though he likes to reveal himself in ways that seem very appealing, that seem like goodness, like truth, like beauty, he does none of those things. Satan in his pride is wicked. 
Satan, the word itself means accuser. He accuses the godly, those purchased by Christ, and accuses them of their sin in order to take them away. But in the end, that's all he is. He's an accuser. He's not the judge. And so if Satan is their father in this situation, then they too, of course, would act as his children. Sounds very similar to the way that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees when he has that long list of woes in Matthew. He says, woe to you, Pharisees. He says, you lie because your father is the father of lies. And he has been lying since the beginning. Paul has to use such language because of his great love for the Corinthians. He is preparing them for what he would do when he comes there in person. He says, you think that what the apostle, the super apostles are saying of me is true, that I speak with strong words in my letters and do not follow through with them when I come? I'll show you what, I, what these men really are. They are not to be found amongst you. They are not to be teaching amongst you. They are those that would take you, the hearts of you and your wives and your children away from Christ and turn the whole church from a church of Christ to a synagogue of Satan. They would do so if they could. They would be like those that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of in the opening chapters of Revelation, whose lampstands would be removed. Paul would not have this. Paul would not see that. He has great love for these people. So he must speak so strongly because he would rather than turn to Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we close on this passage, I want us to be warned about the way in which our enemies work. They will not come to us proclaiming that they are false teachers. They will not say, I would like to preach to you a false gospel today. No. They will say, let me preach to you the gospel. But we must be discerning. This is why, think about how blessed we are. This is why we are so blessed to have the word of God even in our pockets everywhere we go. And yet how many of us read it as much as we would like? How many of us are steeped in the word so that we can be discerning when the false teacher comes knocking on the door and says, let me preach to you a gospel? How many of us flee to this to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor as he is revealed to us so perfectly in his word, in the way that God would have us see him? So that when someone says, I follow Christ, we can say, who is this Christ? that you speak of. So let us cling to the word, brothers and sisters. Let us be discerning, brothers and sisters. Let us, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, be as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. For indeed, we are called to be loving and gentle, and we are also called to be wise and discerning. And in that, we cannot do on our own, but the Lord Jesus, in sending his spirit, strengthens and abides in us that we might do so. So let us turn to him. Amen. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus Christ's words like these found in your holy scriptures are sobering words. And we know that throughout this life, we are not called to be naive, but to be discerning. So Lord, give us that discernment and let us always cling to Christ. Let us always cling to this, your word, your holy, infallible, and errant inspired scriptures. For in them are the words of life. And in it is revealed our blessedness and reward. It's in his name we pray these things in the power of your spirit. Amen.